the question that I want to get at as we start the letter of Paul to the Romans is to think about Paul, but more to think about Paul as an avenue to the reception of the gospel. Throughout your life, you have believed and received a lot of different things. You take in information, you process it, and you try to figure out, well, how am I going to know if this is going to be true or how do I receive it? And one of the ways that people have discovered or thought that makes something palatable, something receivable in the gospel, I think it was Aristotle first who said that oftentimes what people are assessing when they hear a message, first I mentioned it already, logos, the content of the thing. Some people are very truth-driven, very assertion-driven. They just want to know, is this thing true? But it is nearly impossible to function only like that because we are not robots. And so there's two other categories that are mentioned, things that help a message be receivable. And another one, in addition to logos, would be pathos. It's the idea, does this person feel what is being taught? Because there's something about truth. The thing about things that are true is that right along with them, beauty and goodness come along. And when you latch onto something that is true, it moves you. There is a difference between lying and something that you feel innately and know to be true at the core of your being. And so, you would ask yourself in listening to something, does this person seem moved by this? Does it matter? Might be a way to say that. So we have logos, we have pathos, and then we have ethos. And that's the kind of thing where no matter how passionate a person is, and no matter how much sense they might be making, if you believe them to be untrustworthy, if you don't know their story, or if what you know of their story makes you say, eh, or I just don't know, the person themselves can actually be a barrier to receiving the information that has come. So what I want to do this morning is I'm looking through 1 through 7, and then I'm probably going to dig a little bit further, 8 to 14, 15, a little bit as well, what I want to do is not consider it using those words. Those are a little bit harder to understand or to remember, perhaps. I'm going to use words like this, messenger, message, and then mission or motivation. And those are going to roughly mirror those three aspects that we talked about that make a message or some sort of information that you're going to receive believable. So first, I want to consider the person, this might be the ethos, the, the actual man who is sending the letter. What is Rome going to be expecting? What are these Christians going to be receiving when they receive from the Apostle Paul? Now, this is not the most important thing to consider when considering someone as a messenger, but we all assess it anyway, and that is you might say to yourself, well, what was Paul like? What did he look like? Now, here's the thing about Paul. Most of what we have about the Apostle Paul comes from his writings or from those who interacted with them and him, and there are not a lot of public descriptions of what Paul actually looked like. What would it have been like for him to stand in front of a group of people or stand in a synagogue or defend himself before a king? What was his presence? There is one description that has survived down through time. There's one description it is from an apocryphal book. So there were writings in the first couple centuries after the time of Jesus. There were writings that were eventually rejected by the church, things that were sort of sus about them, right? Things that were like, I just don't know. I don't believe this should be received as the Bible, right? And so I just want to give a couple of caveats up front. This description is from one of those, a book or a work called The Acts of Paul and Thesha. 
Now, it could be Thesea. I'm not sure. I didn't look into the history of apocryphal books. That's not my gig. So I'm not sure who that is. But there was a work there, and in this work, it was referenced what people who interacted with Paul mentioned about what he was like and how he looked. Second caveat. One, it's from an apocryphal source. Second, because it's an apocryphal source, I realize that one day I may meet the Apostle Apostle Paul, and he will be very perturbed with me. Like, what if this is totally wrong? And you'll see why he might be perturbed in a second. What if it's totally wrong? And every time someone goes to share this again, he just keeps thinking like, again? That's totally not true. They made it up. But anyway, here's what we have. The only, as far as I can tell, physical description of the Apostle Paul, his ethos. This work tells us that he was a man of small stature. Some people would have said under five feet tall. With a bald head and crooked legs. It's an interesting thing to add right into the description from the start. Small stature, bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting. (laughs) Like AD. Like eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. Sorry, AD is Anthony Davis. He's in the NBA. His nickname is The Brow. He has a very famous unibrow. So that's the idea there. His eyebrows meeting, a nose somewhat hooked, but full of friendliness. At times he appeared like a man, and other times he had the face of an angel. So the only known description, perhaps it is in an apocryphal work, we don't know if it's, if it's false or true, the only one surviving down through the ages shows him to be an unimpressive person. An unimpressive person in his physical look, but there was something about his story and the way that he carried himself and his friendliness and his face that made him have a message that was not only logical and not only said with passion, but something that seemed to be believable because of who he was. I want to go back and remember Paul's story. He tells us the beginning of Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Those descriptions, a servant called and set apart, He is referring back to and referencing, I believe, his calling not only to Jesus but to ministry. For some of us, that is not the same day. It's not always that you come to know Jesus and are also called directly into service in his uh, his work. Now, we know that generally speaking, everyone should serve him if they call him Lord. But Paul had a very specific moment of calling. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Acts 9, 1 down through 19. This is the story of Saul being called and set apart to Jesus. I believe this story is, a, is very important in setting him up as an established and a trustable source. We know that because this story was recorded not once, not twice, but three times in the book of Acts to press home the trustworthiness of this messenger. It says this in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder, what a way to describe someone, breathing murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Scripture goes on to tell us that Paul spent some three years learning from the disciples of Jesus. Not only learning and growing, but also it seems like being instructed by the Lord on what he must suffer for the sake of his name and getting clarity on the extent of his mission with the gospel. The point being that from this moment forward, the testimony of the person of Paul the messenger himself was rock solid and established as someone who had experienced the grace of Jesus, someone who had gone from murderous threats to trustworthy servant and messenger of God. Now, like Ananias, it took many months and years for people to trust this. I love the prayer back from Ananias to, to the Lord. Lord, he says, like reminding him, I will obey but don't you remember, this is the guy that murders us? And it turns out, as you read later on, that Ananias is not the only one with that response. Every time Paul comes around, it seems like it takes some time. In other words, what they're saying is, whatever message he has and whatever, whatever passion he has, let's think about him as a messenger first. And so it's this story, this calling, this moment of coming to faith in Christ to be his servant, that marks Paul as a messenger. The way that he describes himself is first with this word, a servant. That he is a servant. The word underlying servant there is translated at sometimes in Scripture, a bond servant or a slave. Paul references right away the introduction, the thing that marks him the most is not some fancy introduction, not a stance or position that makes him impressive, but rather that he is a slave. This is not an insult to himself, though. He says, of the messenger, if you're writing out particular things that mark him, I am a slave apostle. I am a bound sent one. 
which is such an interesting description of the kind of commitment, the kind of binding that happens when we come to Christ. We are no longer our own. We have been given up over to slavery to one who is now our Lord, but it is in giving ourselves over that we find freedom, bound but sent, slave but apostle. This becomes the mark of the man. The messenger himself sees no other role, no other importance for himself than this. He has been given over, called. This means that it is not just a chosen profession. Paul does not share his story by saying, well, first I went to a middle school guidance counselor, and they said, Paul, you know, here's the thing. You have a face for radio, you know, or whatever. They didn't, they didn't say that. They didn't tell him, you did well in your communication classes. They didn't tell him, you seem to be bold and could take a flogging or two. This was not him pursuing a profession based on what he liked or what he thought he might be effective at. He says, from the beginning, I want you to know that me as a person, I was grasped, taken, and set as a slave by Jesus himself. This is important not only to trust him as a person to realize that he experienced this, but because apostles, those who are sent off, and maybe we'll take some time this week or next week, Brian, I'd love to, uh, to go back and forth with you on apostleship and what it meant and why there were some and what they mean in the Bible. And more importantly, are you an apostle? And if, if not, you're not. But if not, why not? And how does that work? But I'll say very briefly that it was important to hear that Jesus had commissioned Paul because apostles needed to be commissioned personally by Jesus and secondarily needed to have been eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Of course, if you took that without this account and without Jesus setting Saul apart, he would not have qualified. The final thing to say about Paul, and it is not a throwaway statement, is that Paul is sure to take the medicine that he gives One of the most important things about receiving a message from someone, the trustworthiness of that person, is to ask yourself the question, do they live, or at least the best that they can, do they attempt to live the thing that they are giving, or the thing that they are teaching, or the thing that they're commending? And Paul is always quick from the beginning to describe himself not only as a bound sent one, a slave apostle, but set apart for the gospel of God, not just to tell others about it, but to live it himself. He is gospel saved. He always, whenever he can, glories in using we. It says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. It is very, very possible to be a person who sees truth, who works up a kind of passion about it, but never bothers to actually apply it to your own life. And so Paul mentions these things. Not only am I a bound sent one, not only am I set apart for a particular message of the gospel, but I have been saved by this gospel. I trust it. I live it. This is where grace has come. It's what I am believing. And overall, the thing that marks Paul as a messenger, one worthy to be received, is that he sees Jesus not only as a good teacher, not only as a special person, but as Lord. This is massive. I think it's massive not only in a description of himself here, but we find evidence that Paul was very concerned about this throughout the entirety of his ministry. Paul would go and plant churches in the hardest of places. He would have crowds 
rushing to him. There are times when Paul worked miracles through the Spirit of God that seemed positively Jesus-like. Healing of diseases and seeing people raised from the dead. And yet, Paul never, ever, ever forgot the thing that would happen is if, that if he refused to be a Christian himself. So he tells people all the time, pray for me, pray for us. We don't want to run the race and then be disqualified. We don't want to be like those who commend others and lead others, but, but inwardly are wasting away and end up betraying our calling. So Paul, it's not a throwaway thing, is a Christian, which is an interesting qualification. And might I say it's something we should all strive for, that those who will be spiritual mentors, teachers, counselors, shepherds in our midst should have a vital, ongoing, active Christian life. It's not a throwaway. So that's the messenger himself. When we think about Paul, what do we think about? Secondarily, we realize that he has been set apart for one particular message. He has been set apart for the gospel. Something about this particular day means that he now has not only in his person received Jesus, but he has been given a profession. I mentioned earlier that not everyone comes to this particular point. But there are those who in coming to Jesus over the course of time also feel compelled by the message that they've believed to get it out. I do not have a Damascus Road experience. I do not have a moment where I fell silent, blind, dumb, deaf. There were no prophets. Thankfully, I had never, as far as I can remember, breathed murder against anyone. But I can say very definitively that one of the marks of my life is that between the ages of 16 and 18, in different circumstances, at different moments, depending on how charismatic I felt that day, I might have felt the heebie-jeebies more, or maybe if I was more logical, I might have been driven by truth. But sometime in that two-year period, through a series of commitments, I felt called, commissioned, whatever you'd want to call it, set on a trajectory to serve the church and to teach the Bible for the rest of my life. And that for whatever reason, for me to go in a different path would have, it felt to me at that moment as sin. And now some decades on later, I have not felt relieved of that particular sense for my life. It has been a gift in some ways to not only have found Jesus and to love him, but then to say, I feel set apart to do this work. There have been a lot of things that I have doubted myself, first and foremost, doubted different circumstances, people around me. I've had bouts of, bouts of doubt, struggles, but it has been a settled reality from that period of my life that for me, this is my job. This is my profession. And I sense that in a much larger way, a much more pointed way in the Apostle Paul. What he is set apart for is not just for his job, but for this one particular message. It is God's gospel. He gives us some of the aspects of the gospel here in Romans chapter 1. These are just some of the words that describe. If we're going to say, well, some people want to know, well, I don't care if you're a trustworthy person, well, you do kind of. 
And yeah, you can be passionate about it, but tell me what you're saying. Just give me the facts. Tell me what you're saying. And here in this introduction to Romans, Paul introduces as well the message that he's going to share. Now, thankfully, there's 16 glorious chapters that describe the message that he wants to share. But here are some of the basics. The first, Paul says, I am set apart for the gospel of God. This is important. This is a possessive. He says from the beginning, I'm a slave. I'm an ambassador. I'm a messenger. This gospel, this news that I have to share with you is not my own. I didn't make it up. I'm not free to change it because it wasn't my news. Not my story to tell. This is God's news for the world. And that's one of the first things to receive and to remember about the gospel. It is first and foremost God's. Whenever and wherever we believe the gospel, whenever and wherever we share the gospel, whenever and wherever we write the gospel or sing the gospel or pray the gospel, we should be moved by a a trepidation inside that says something like this, this is God's message and I am not free to change it. So the gospel is something that is as sturdy as God is sturdy himself. That's one of the things about this message. More than that, this message is as sturdy as God himself because it has been in existence since before the beginning of time. God made a pact with his son to save those and to bring them back to him. Paul tells us in verse 2 of Romans chapter 1, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul is going to give them a message, first that is God's, second that is very old. This is not something new, he tells them. In a way, one of the most exciting things about church is that we all rush to gather together and we look at one another and we very sincerely say, tell me something old. You know the old phrase when you see your friends, what's new? This is so cheesy. In a way, Christians say, what's old? What has God been saying forever? What has God been promising from the beginning of time? What has God's heart been for those who have sinned and fallen away from him? What has he always wanted? And Paul says that the only message that is good news is the old news that God has been promising beforehand, that has been built on the testimony of the prophets, all who have called on God from the very beginning down through the scriptures. The gospel is not the book of Romans. Romans is one expression of the entire gospel in the whole book. That's what he says. And these will be important moments, not only for Paul to be received by them, but when Paul finds temptation to want to say something that would tickle ears. You know what's exciting to human beings? To be elite, to be in on secret knowledge, to find the thing that others haven't found. You know how we could gather a crowd? We could gather a crowd by coming in here every single week, and I could get quieter and quieter with whispers. I could say, come on in. Let me tell you what I just discovered. The never-before-seen message, the secret message of God for people. I do not know why, but humans eat that up. They eat it up. And Paul says, no, 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 let me tell you something right from the outset. I'm just a slave, a bound, sent one. I'm going to tell you God's news, not my news, and it's been there forever. More than that, he's going to remind them that this good news, which was promised beforehand in the Scriptures is centered on now and will be, in large part, the gospel is the person of Jesus. That the news that has been sent is this son. The gospel is going to concern Jesus. There is no gospel until you get to Jesus. 
It's been said that every debate religiously, every debate between denominations, nearly every heresy in the world is in some way a Christological one. No matter how spiritual someone is, or how ethical, or how moral, or how religious they are, eventually what must be discussed is, well, what do you think concerning Jesus? He is the center point of the entirety of the good news. And so Paul tells them, Oh, yeah, yeah, this set-apart gospel, God's gospel, the old gospel, it concerns Jesus Christ. And he's going to give them more details, more of the specifics, the facts of the case. Well, what about Jesus? Well, it's Jesus who is the very Son of God himself, divine in nature. And that divine in nature Son descended according to flesh in the line of a king, in the line of David. So the good news is that God has come in the flesh. And this Jesus, this Son, this divine fleshly one, I know the fleshly for most terms means sinful, he's not sinful, he lived in the world, a perfect life that you and I could never live though we should. He died a death that all of us don't have to die if we're found in him, but we should. And then he tells us, This will be the good news in verse 4, that that same Jesus come from God, born in the flesh, was declared to be. What a wonderful word, declared to be. This is like a, a word that describes both something being heralded and sent forth, but also just revealed. It's like a stage, yeah, a stage where there's a big set behind it and there's actors and everyone's ready and they're just set up in their choreography, right? And then the, and then the lights come on and then the curtains go to the side. Well, this word, I get this picture that it's not just that. It's not only that, but it's like the stage is coming forward into the world. There's been a mystery that's been hidden, but it's also being sent out. And what happens is Jesus, that divine son, born in the flesh, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, he is finally, utterly, gloriously shown to be God, vindicated by the spirit of holiness when he was resurrected from the dead. And it's that resurrected Jesus who is now Lord of all. What Paul wants to say is, I have news. It's not my own. I can't change it. It's God's. It's been forever. And it focuses on his son. And what we've seen in our day and what we've received in the message of the resurrection is life itself. I love that in the outset here of the content, the message of the gospel, that Paul shows this gospel to be triune. It is God the Father sending God the Son and the Spirit, God the Spirit resurrecting God the Son who has come from God the Father that is the good news of the gospel. This is going to be very important and we'll get at it in chapters to come. But one of the temptations when telling the good news, when telling the gospel is to pit the Father against us. The Son is like the nice mediator guy the Spirit's just kind of like a Woodstock vibing sort of figure. He's like, I just want peace, right? Did I make this up? You've never felt this before? You know, there's a way to share the gospel that basically says this. Here's the thing. God the Father is very righteous and holy, and he hates you because you sin. He can't wait to send you to hell. That was his whole plan. And then the son one day stepped in front and said, Dad, please, let's be nice. I'll die for them. And you can, in telling the gospel like that, be unfaithful to the very God you want to serve. 
The gospel is a triune message. It is a triune message of the love of a father who commits to send his one begotten son. It is about the grace and the sacrifice of a son who is slain before the foundation of the world who comes to give himself and it is about the power, the life-giving nature of God the Spirit who resurrects Jesus from the dead, comes from on high to empower all of those who follow him. There's one final thing that Paul's going to be super motivated by, and we're going to get at this some here at the end, and then we'll just have to wait till next week. I said first we're going to talk about the messenger of Paul's story, and second, the message that he's so excited to get out. And now there's going to be a link. There's going to be a link between the end, the final thing that he says about this message that leads him toward mission, that motivates him, his passion for the world. And that is this, that that good news, now imagine how good news that is, right? Like describing a complex government program for the lottery. So someone comes out one day and I just want you to know we've leveraged all of humanity. We've found the fountain of life. You can live forever, perfect harmony, perfect inner peace, everything. The next question that someone might have is, well, who's that for? Who gets that? How do we access it? Is good news for everybody? And Paul says, yes. It's part of what makes it so good. Verse 5, he says, this good news that's about the Son and the Father and the Spirit, that he has been given grace and apostleship to bring out obedience of faith for the sake of his name among where? Among all the nations. Yes, even you. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, even as far as Rome and as far as Rome's influence goes in the world, all who hear and all who place faith, good news. So it's not just that there's a path to righteousness out of your sin. It's not just that God the Father loved, so, loved the world so much that he sent his Son. It's not just that the Son lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death. It's not just that the Spirit resurrected that Son and now has come to dwell here on earth. It's that everyone can get in on this. It's that this message does not exclude anyone. There's no fine print There's no, it's only for 12 and older. There's no senior citizen discount. This is for all. And not only all kinds of individual people, but all kinds of places and all ethnicities and all groups. And what this leads is Paul to have an undying, unending passion that that message, this good news, delivered from him who has received it himself, and given given a commission, would go out to the whole world. And so he says a few things about his mission. He turns his attention to Rome, which he, where he's never been, though he wishes he could have gone there. He says, this is why I'm so motivated. I'm so excited, he says in verse 8, which you haven't read yet. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul has a personal passion that all of the world would hear this good news. He prays to that end. He labors to that end. He set aside every other personal ambition to that end. 
And so his passion is a result of realizing not only his personal call, but the extent and the reality of this message that he's been given. So one of the questions, one of the thoughts as we go through this, as we consider someone like Paul, is first and foremost, how believable or receivable is this message for you and for for me? Has this book, this letter, this testimony, this message, has it reached you in the same way that it reached the Romans and changed them, in the same way that it reaches far-flung nations and changes them, the same way that it changed Augustine, the same way that it changed Luther and Wesley, the same way that it has changed the lives of young men even this week on our campus at FSU. Do you see in the person of Paul a trustworthy messenger? Do you hear in the gospel given to him a worthy message? Do you long for good news, not only to be received by you, but to be for all people. This is part and parcel to what it means to be a church. Paul is describing in detail not only what it means to personally come to know Jesus, but then to take into full understanding with all that he has the implications of this message. Paul has been motivated passionately, prayerfully, personally to bring this gospel news to the ends of the earth. He's going to say later in verse 14 that he is under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I love this phrase, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Essentially what he's saying is you could find yourself almost anywhere in there. Yes, foolish barbarians, this message is for you. Ultimately, the receivability of this message, of course, is going to be brought about by the Spirit of God. And so I have a commitment. I've asked our elders to commit to this. I think we've done it regularly. I have a commitment knowing full well that over the next number of months, probably year, year and a half, we're going to be proclaiming the gospel from this book. And I don't make assumptions that just because we set the things in motion and plan some songs and take, some, take an offering and give some announcements and then I teach this, I don't want to make the assumption that God is at work. It's the commitment that I've made and asked elders and staff to be a part of and I would ask us as a church, can we pray for our gatherings on Sunday mornings? Can we pray that those who need to know this message and receive this message, that they would find in Paul a trustworthy messenger? Can we pray that it's the passion coming through the pages of Romans and then through us that moves someone to say, I need to listen to this news? And then more than that, that just the bare facts, the reality of the sinfulness of mankind, all of us unrighteous, that as we proclaim again and again, week after week after week, that righteousness has been given to us in Christ, that this gospel of old is for them, that people would walk in forgiveness and light and freedom and grace. 
I do not want to go through the motions assuming that because we've put the things in place that everyone is okay. I don't want to go through the motions that I have enough of the gospel and this is for everyone else. I don't want to go through the motions assuming that all of you have committed your life to Jesus in this way. I don't want to go through the motions knowing full well that there are streets right out there and there are neighborhoods right over there and workplaces over here full of people who this news is for them. It's for them. There could be someone breathing murder, foolish barbarian breathing murder news for them. Wise, sophisticated professor news for them. So I have found the person of Paul to be trustworthy, not only in his self and the experience and faithfulness to Jesus, but his ministry and his message and his passion for the lost to be convincing. I have been changed by receiving this message. I want to set an example this morning. I want to invite you to pray with me, not only that you would be too, but that over the course of these weeks that we see God do a work in saving. Would you pray with me? God, you've seen fit to not only save and to call people to yourself, but to do so through particular means. It is the preaching of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel, the living of the gospel that changes people's lives. It makes them new. There's no other method. We're not going to market our way to new life. We're not going to reason our way there. We're not going to buy our way there. There's not enough entertainment to get us there. Nothing enticing, nothing can change like this message and this news. And so I pray, God, would you, with all of your fatherly affection, would be present, watchful, attentive here on our Sunday mornings when we gather and we consider Scripture. Jesus, I pray that you would give grace. You would be our Lord, our main shepherd, that you would be center stage in all that we say and do. And I pray, Spirit of God, Spirit of holiness, a Spirit so powerful that you can raise Christ from the dead, we pray, Spirit of God, be active and present here. Bring to our attention the lost. Bring to our attention those who need to know Christ. Remind us of our own stories, of when we received and grasped this message. And God, I pray that we'd see that taking place here in our midst on these mornings. God, bless. We commit ourselves to you. We pray for much fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.